Welcome to the Kickstarter Journeys podcast brought to you by Fundamental Games. Each episode will provide you with some insight and opinions about successfully funded Kickstarter projects from the creators themselves. Here's your host, Wes Woodbury, ready to learn about another successful journey from the popular crowdfunding platform. Enjoy! Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Kickstarter Journeys. Today we have with us Johnny Pack. He's one of the developers, the lead developer, actually, with Fantasia Games, and we're talking about Endless Winter. How's it going today, Johnny? Really good. Thanks for having me on. I'm really glad to have you on. You're running a, a pretty amazing campaign right now, or part of a group that is, and um, I believe, as of this moment, you are over $500,000 raised and over 6,000 backers. How do you guys feel about that? <laughs> really excited. Uh, that exceeded our end goals that we're dreaming of and then we still have i think seven days left as of the time of this recording so uh it's cool we're glad that we do have lots of ideas for stretch goals and things to to run us out to the end so we're not not panicked that (laughs) we've run out of ideas but yeah it's really exciting We're, we're we're thrilled Right on. Yeah. So um, you mentioned your goal there. So I think originally this campaign had a goal of about $30,000 and you blew that away in the first day and you guys have been climbing high. I don't think you've even really hit that law that most Kickstarters hit. I mean, obviously not as big as the first couple of days, but it's been a really steady incline in uh, funding. So pretty cool that you guys have managed that. Um, do you know much about the funding goal, or is your, what, how did your team collaborate to come up with 30 grand as a as a goal? That's uh, basically based on like a very bottom line manufacturing. If the game were to be manufactured with the most bare bones uh, offering, is it technically possible to pull it off? That's that's kind of where that that amount shows up. Yeah. Um, so like when I kickstarted my my own game years ago, uh, it was a small vanity run of a game. Uh, I want to say the minimum print run for me was, I don't know, like $22,000 at the time for a, a small print run of a game. And that yeah. included, you know, basic fulfillment. So it can be done. And that was a chunky Euro. Um, and so it, it's just like nobody wants to just scrape by and do that because there's no no profit at that point. But, um, yeah, we're definitely uh, hoping for more than that. So, yeah. Well, um, I know I know the the company that is kind of uh, showing at Fantasia Games. This is their first Kickstarter that's showing, but you are part of quite a few other Kickstarters. Maybe can you share some of those Kickstarter names that you've been part of with some other companies and what you learned from them that you brought to the table for this one? Sure. Um, so my own first experience was that game I just mentioned, and I just did a small print run of. Uh, uh, 1,200 units back. I started preparing in 2014 and um, did it then. And that it was right before Exploding Kittens um, hit Kickstarter. So when I was campaigning, pre-campaigning, going around telling people I'm going to do this Kickstarter thing, I get this game I want to make, a lot of people didn't know what Kickstarter was still and didn't know what crowdfunding was. So I would first have to tell them it's this thing and this is how it works. And then I'd have to try to pitch them my game idea on top of it. And double pitching like that was was tricky. <laughs> so, uh, And then shortly thereafter, Exploding Kittens happened. And I think it brought this huge audience of people to Absolutely. Kickstarter. And now they knew how it worked. They'd seen things. They've got stuff. They've logged in. They've got an account. They're all hooked up and ready to go. And I feel like it's, uh, it's, it's just a lot easier to do something like that from that point. So that was... 
that was a hurdle that I had on my first one. And I kind of learned the back end of things and just did a, you know, small print round, made my game, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't till uh, last year when we did uh, Coloma with Final Frontier Games that I kind of came back in and helped them on the back end of that Kickstarter a lot. Um, developing that game with them and it was cool for them to kind of show me you know how, how you do it properly with like a larger company more bandwidth and uh you know effort and pre-marketing and fancy videos and stuff like that and then i continued with final frontier working with their kickstarters into um merchant's cove which did very well oh, I think some pretty, pretty high funding games there yeah between coloma and, and merchant's cove I, I remember watching some videos about those and uh, impressive color, impressive visuals on those Kickstarter campaigns too. Mhm, mhm. Yeah, so that that was that was a cool experience, and I helped a lot with. Um, you know, I'm in California, and the uh, Fantasia Games is mostly in the Greece area, and uh, Final Frontiers in Macedonia. So our time zones are pretty different, and it's one cool thing about development with these companies is we can use the whole clock because I can work while they're asleep and then I can send something over and they'll play test it while I'm asleep and they'll already have play test notes in the morning. And with the Kickstarters, uh, we have a nice tag team thing where we're awake overlap for a certain amount. We can recap, talk about things and then let the team over there pass out while I uh, do updates and talk with backers and do the whole commenting thing. And then at some point, you know, I'll start to nod off and they'll they'll wake up and carry on. So it's it's uh, very efficient, actually, being in two time zones. Yeah, that's really neat. And uh, I, I've spoken to a few of the people that are overseas for both my games and, and others through um, discussions like this. And it's really cool how you can make a, a global event out of a board game. It's really neat. And uh, I like how you guys have done it. Now, you, Thank you. Um, yeah. Now, you guys have a really dynamic game that involves two things I love in board games, deck builders. I mean, I love games like Dominion. I love Tyrants of the Underdark. I love Clank. But then worker placement, I love games like Castles of Burgundy or um, Stone Age or uh, recently learned Feast of Odin. That was a beast of a game. But you Mm -hmm. guys somehow blended those two beloved game designs into one massive game. And from what I've seen in the videos is it works fantastic. So... I'm curious how you managed to amalgamate two game designs into one and managed to sell it to people that probably have never played a game like that before. Yeah, it's an interesting um, state of the game hobby and industry right now is that we, you know, you get these kind of emergent properties coming out of games where somebody comes up with a cool mechanic, like Dominion comes out and now there's deck building. And then you see it integrated into games like uh, Rococo or um, Great Western Trail where it's, or even my own Sierra West, where there's elements of deck building in a bigger game, yeah. and so it's 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 a neat time to uh, be designing and developing because you can you can look at these things in kind of pure form, uh, like we could look at Dominion as pure form, or we could look at something like uh, Stone Age as a pure form of a worker placement game, or Kalis or something like that, and then you know thinking about letting those things overlap in some way that doesn't feel disparate. And, and some clever way of, of making that work. And uh, the designer of Endless Winter, Stan, uh, came up with a really neat system of hand management that there's kind of two neat things going on there. Is one is that you place a worker and you go do the actions, but the worker itself doesn't really do anything. It's the cards that you play with that worker that effectively pay for the actions that you're taking. You might be spending labor, effort, resources, and all these things at the worker placement spots. And so... 
what you're really trying to do is is manage that. And um, things that, you know, you brought up Clank, which is an interesting example, obviously, because it's not really a worker placement, but the, yeah. the deck building is driving the area movement, the, you know, point-to-point movement in that game, and a lot of what you're doing and how you do it. So it's kind of like the one direction where this is kind of the other one where the the, the figure goes someplace and then you pay the cards to let the figure do what it intended to do once it was already there. Yeah. So once so that, you, once you place your worker, then wherever spot you're on, you can kind of trigger that spot with the cards in your hand. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a spot you go to, will have a, like a little menu of options or we call them the action columns. Cause uh, you go there and then there's the first option. It might be, um, you know, might be uh you know collect a collect a card from the market and you pay for the cards at the market then you can click down to this next little spot and it, it will let you do something like call a card from your deck you know put it into a, a berry pile so you can manage that and then there's uh kind of an incentive spot that's also there that the first player to go to a given spot will get um a benefit that the other players who would also go to that spot later would not get so it right. kind of makes you jockey for position a lot yeah, and that reminds me a little bit. I think there's some elements of that in Viticulture. If you're playing multiplayer, the first player gets a little perk that other players don't get. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a neat thing. It's funny to hear a lot of the reviewers you know, talk about how consequential or inconsequential those those things are and if, if it drives interaction. Because some people say if, if you go someplace and, it, and you know somebody else already takes the, the benefit, oh, then you're not really interacting because somebody's probably not going to go to the same space as you right away. But you are interacting is that it was blocky that you went there and you disincentivized them to go to that spot. Now they're going to consider their other options, wait against maybe what they wanted to do because you got there first. But I know that you know that, and so it actually turns into a really interactive um, you know, metagame right away. So uh, where I wouldn't say it's combative in any way that you go to a spot and you need to like you know, pay a premium or something like that, it definitely has a global effect on the decision process of the other players. Yeah, yeah. Any, any of those worker placements out there that can kind of uh, drive that aspect of it can help instead of a complete take that. It's more of a, uh, I'll, I'll take that and affect the fa- your options or reduce your options is kind of neat. Mm-hmm. And how was that to play test? Like when you were, when you're play testing worker placement, you know, you can kind of figure things out when you're playtesting deck building, you can work things out, but you're, how do you play test both mechanics at once? Or did you try both independently and then amalgamate them after? So when I came on board as the developer on this game, uh, that had been amalgamated sometime before in the original design. And then I think it had been adapted a little bit by Fantasia before they brought me onto the team to work on that spot. So the idea of going to a spot and then spending cards as labor to do the spots action was very, uh, I think it was very integral to the game, probably there from the, you know, the beginning. Um, what I focused on a lot was what do those cards do and how powerful are they? Also, uh, some of the stuff is like, uh, how many worker placement spots are in total? I think when I first started, there was five or six worker placement spots, and there were some restrictions about going there, and we consolidated it down to four because you could basically do everything you wanted to do, and it felt tight, not too sprawled out. And then it was also, how many workers do you get uh, to go into these spots? And that's a consideration. So at one point, I think we were playing with uh, 
experimented with four workers and obviously two is too few so it's kind of like a goldilocks uh finding of how many workers how many cards wh how many actions and uh adjusting all those parameters to uh to fit well at a two three and four player game and then obviously the uh, solo mode is uh, adapted to replicate the two-player game nice it sounds complex but it sounds like you guys between before you got there and then after you got there you really did work it out and some of the reviews that i listened to like um whether it was quackalope or whether it was hungry gamer or ratto uh, one of ratto's comments actually is, says i think this is going to really blow up on kickstarter <laughs> and boy was he right for a first-time creator or first-time creator company with fantasia games and not an ip to, to kind of support it you guys just did fantastic in pushing this to half a million dollars with plenty more to come, I'm sure, in the next week. So that's really cool. And then, um, you know, with these video creators, I know you're not a huge part of the marketing aspect, but uh, I'm sure you've heard about how people responded to the game. Um, how do you how did you guys decide on what social media or content creators got a physical copy and who got to do it on Tabletop Simulator? And how was that all figured out? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a little bit of trial and errors, like who do we know, who's available, on what timelines, because it was kind of a short timeline, and also the prototypes that we had crafted um, was partly Game Crafter, partly um, another guy that we hired to, to make some of the 3D stuff and all that and assemble it all really nicely. Uh, we couldn't actually afford to make that many prototypes, so I think there's I think there's four of them. I think there's three circulating the U.S. and one circulating Europe, if I'm not mistaken. And so it had to be on this, like, you know, you've, you've got five days if you want to review it sort of a thing, and then you got to pass it on to the next guy. And if that yeah. didn't work, we would offer to um, play on Tabletop Simulator with the caveat that obviously there's going to be some extra downtime and it's going to be fiddly and you'll pick up the table more and you pick up the cards. So. <laughs> yeah, there, there's definitely some downsides to, to TTS. It's it's so good in that you can have that dynamic and change the game on in an instant, but then the, the fiddliness of a component landing wrong or flipping over or whatever can be a pain. Yeah, I'm personally terrible at it. I have to just bumble my way through it, but it is really useful for doing remote testing, especially when I'm you know working with these guys that are uh, <laughs> very, very far away. So it, it works out for that sort of stuff. And then I can do my local testing with, uh, you know, small choice groups of people that I still see during lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, one, like you got this out to quite a few people. One of the references was that this could become an elusive, one of those elusive evergreen games. And that's something any game designer would love to have as a game that will continually sell, you know, mm -hmm. two years, five years, 10 years down the road. Uh, that's kind of what Stone Myers Foundation is built on. What do you guys try to do to leverage that particular phrase that somebody accolades your game with? We're internally we've we've mentioned uh, <laughs> that term before anybody said it out loud, so it was really cool to hear that because we we're like, you know, let's try to make an evergreen game. Let's not kid around and just make you know this this week's hotness or the next big Kickstarter. That's kind of whatever. It's like let's let's really make something that's solid that'll just you know maybe slowly but surely creep towards the front of BGG and. And just, you know, warrant more print runs and just create a base for, because good games are good, and also to establish Fantasia as a company that, uh, you know, really has a credible foundation for their flagship product and build from that. And to, uh, we're all sort of perfectionists, and so we, we, we don't want to uh, just make something and then try the next thing and try the next thing and just kind of scatter shot. So it's, I think Fantasia is going to be a fairly focused studio where 
uh, you know, looking ahead, it's going to be not that many games per year are going to come out, even if even if we scale up a little bit. It's just going to be the that that sort of focus that we want to have to to really look at everything from every possible way and, and scratch the itch of whatever market we're trying to touch, which is mostly that uh, me- medium weight euro uh, market. Yeah, you're definitely in there. Like looking at BGG, you're right in between Root and Brass Birmingham. And those are some pretty amazing titles to be amongst when you're looking at a, a website that has literally tens of thousands of games. So well done, <laughs> I think, in the top 20, but uh, probably going to find your way up in the coming weeks, at, or at least the next week once you hit that 72-hour mark. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, you guys have a, a plethora of components and tray inserts that are planned for this game. And as a Kickstarter creator, it can be a challenge to figure out, you know, when do I, I cut the limit and say I can't actually afford any more components? Um, and I saw you guys chose to go with Panda for manufacturing, which is actually one of the more expensive but higher quality manufacturers. Maybe tell the listeners a bit about your company's efforts to find the right manufacturer, or did you guys just want to go with Panda from the beginning? Oh, that was uh, deliberate. We did get quotes from a lot of different manufacturers, and manufacturers nowadays just pop out of the woodwork. We just make jokes that, you know, you could, like, lift up a curtain like Scooby-Doo, and there'd be a manufacturer behind it with a business card. Um, They're they're really out there. Random Facebook messages or random emails. Yeah, so many. So many. And so uh, what a couple things that Fantasia really wants to do is they really wanted to kind of go for the – best that they could afford of any possible domain. So they got, you know, Demetra doing the artwork, which is great. And not only just a little bit, but a lot of artwork. And, uh, and then, of course, we've got Paul Grogan doing uh, gaming rules, doing the rule book. So a very meticulous, great rule book editor and writer uh, doing that end. And uh, I believe, I hope that's why they hired me as their lead developer, because they were impressed with um, my work with Final Frontier and other games that I've I've gotten, yeah. and I think they saw that uh, Coloma got the seal of excellence through uh, Dice Tower, and so did uh, the designer of Endless Winter Stand for one of his games. And so they're kind of like they wanted to get, for whatever reason, a couple guys that had the seal of excellence on their games. And nice. so uh, choosing Pando is kind of like that same sort of thing where it's like, yeah, it costs a little bit more, but their customer service and interface is really, really good. And you know, the it's going to be a low risk as far as the backers trusting that we're going to get things done right. When they see Panda, it's kind of like, all right. And, and we feel the same way, that Panda's going to take care of us uh, in the case that we maybe don't know what we're doing because we're new in some little art that uh, our guy, our inside rep, uh, Joe Wiggins, is doing a great job guiding us with options. We'll, we'll ask for something, and he'll show us three options, and we get to pick what works for our budget and what works aesthetically and, and uh, for usability and all those things. Yeah, I can I can attest to you that there are some of the smaller companies that will give you cheaper rates. They won't really proof your work very well. They'll just give you a cursory glance, and if something's not printed right, by the time it hits mass manufacturing, you could be um, frustrating your backers. So the, going with somebody with a, a reputation or a background of really looking into every component from top to bottom, I think that'll be a big benefit, especially when you're selling um, upwards of 6,000 copies just on um the kickstarter alone i mean you guys probably have a production plan to go into the tens of thousands i would assume based on your success so far yeah i'm not sure the the actual print run size because like you mentioned this exceeded our expectations as far as funding and backers already and so 
uh, it will be enough, obviously, to cover all them, and then and then some, obviously, to uh, be able to go into, um, you know, have have some extra games to sell afterwards, and and figure out what the plan is next. One thing that we don't have completely locked down is uh, like a strong plan for distribution in the U.S. right now. So uh, we're taking appointments and talking to different options, whether um, you know, we can get in with the large distributors directly, or if we need to work with a consolidator that can get us in there, or what the options are. Obviously, we're going to try to get the best option we can. And uh, luckily, with you know, pretty you know, successful Kickstarter like this, I think we'll be able to get a little bit more attention than um, yeah. than I could have per se like five years ago with my own game. Say, hey, I've got you know, <laughs> I got. Uh, 60 leftover games in my garage you want one <laughs> yeah <laughs> so no i get that and you guys um one of the things that uh you mentioned on a recent update because i'm following you with my pledge is uh that you hit a tier where you now are giving every single player count their own individual tray and that's expensive like anybody that does plastic modeling or has quoted for inserts knows that that's pricey so you guys hit a threshold could have made a ton of extra profit and then reinvested that back into making your core game even better so um, I, I really love the fact that your company is built on that foundation and it just looks, the insert alone look gorgeous, but now you're, um, and I, I think there is an extra dollar cost for, for backers they have to add, add on, but just giving that option is pretty, pretty cool. What made you guys decide that that was a good option to go with? So they wanted to, uh, full disclosure, they actually wanted to release those trays from the beginning. It was like one of the like late review awesome stretch goals that uh, we wanted to put into the game. So that was um, that wasn't really a pivot, but what was is uh, that backers really, 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 really wanted a big box that fit all the expansions <laughs> yeah, and, too, yeah. and stuff on there. And so what took us a little bit of time was going, okay, if we do this big box thing, there's some logistical stuff we need to sort out. And it's not just a bigger box, but we need to then think about how these trays will then fit into the bigger box and look at that design space and and uh, factor that into things and that was the one um, like you mentioned that we have to have a little bit of an add-on I think they're asking seven euros which allows you to forego the smaller box get the bigger box and then of course that's going to come with the bigger uh, you know all, all the the uh, trays and stuff will be inside that big box. Right. Um, so that's that's right now now people are asking if they can fit the uh, giant uh, play mat which is like you know. <laughs> It's like the size of a yoga mat. You always saying, hey, want more. You know that, Johnny. You always like, want ah, more. I don't know if you can put that in there. I think that one's going to have to go uh, on the side. Yeah, so. Got to hang it on a hanger or something. It just doesn't yeah. look good anyway. So. Cool. And then um, I know you mentioned this in uh, one of our chats back and forth or in the email, but uh, you guys already have two expansions, if not more, kind of or three, I think, um, built into the Kickstarter offerings. And... Uh, so you turn it, what could be an evergreen game into even more right from the get-go. How hard was that to establish? Uh, that was one of the first things that they uh, brought me on for, actually, was they wanted to see if I had ideas for expansion content and um, you know, modules, promo stuff, and to what extent. And so we discussed those things and, and started a development cycle with those because they felt like just having, you know, replayability is a big deal right now and also solo mode so we brought in my friend uh, drake villarreal and my recommendation to make a really good solo mode uh, yeah. from the get-go that wasn't like again wasn't like a mid-campaign like oh we need a solo mode thing it was you know let's, let's get a guy who's really good and passionate about these to do that proper and touch that audience 
and then let's look at how do we make uh, the game have more replayability. And so the the um, Ancestors expansion has kind of the uh, replayability is is the theme of that one. So it's a lot of cards, but there are a lot of alternate cards for things that uh, exist in the game. When people right. first play it, they would say, oh, there's a lot going on in the game and all that. But after they play it once, they're like, wow, that all comes together. It makes sense. And they tend to have a little bit of an itch that they want more out of a couple of the systems. They'll say like, ah, oh, you know, I like the set collection of animals, but wouldn't it be cool if every animal did something different instead of just, you know, either points or food? And we're like, well... Good thing the expansion comes with the game when you back it because it comes with a complete alternate deck of animals and each type of animal does a unique thing. And so then people say, hey, we want more special chief abilities. It's like, yeah, that's that's the kind of stuff that's in that box is just the slightly more complex alternate versions of what the cards are in the core game. And then the other expansions, the uh, rivers and rafts and the cave paintings, do something that's different it's not like a it's not swapping something out it's it's additive in that case and so one of them is adding little landmarks and the river that goes through the hex map and then you get little canoes it allows for different type, sorts of mobilities and different types of starting locations and every map you design is going to have some subset of these landmarks which all have different scoring characteristics and they look really cool too um, so that's very map centric so people who like the territory control part of that, the interactive part of that, the aesthetics sure. of it, uh, and even being creative and making cool little rivers and stuff uh, when you first set it up, that's that whole box is just kind of like that. It doesn't have tendrils into the rest of the game. And uh, right before we jumped on this call, I was finishing the update, kind of exposing what the uh, cave paintings expansion is. And that was one of those kind of crazy ideas where we're talking like hey let's do something weird with one and let's try something that's like just people aren't going to know what to think of right away and he said what if it was like you know a dry erase board kind of like these roll and write things and then just like everything else in the game it might appear to be a disparate system but once you start playing it integrates perfectly back in and basically coming up with a, a system where you can use use a lot of the characteristics from roll and write games which is checking things off and crossing stuff and cross-referencing and doing all these things. But usually those games have a random medium where it's rolling or flipping a card or something of which, you know, the, maybe the main player observes and then records some of that information. Sometimes there's off-turn benefits for other players. And then you go and you kind of sort out your little thing. Um, we, so we didn't want to just go like, oh, it's endless winter, the rolling, right? But it's what it's doing is it's allowing you to go and do worker placement and deck building and all these other things, resource management, to then allocate some of those resources and actions to this uh, this board where you outline and you you draw on here, which actually ends up looking like a like an animal, like a cave painting for reals. But then you're also unlocking all these bonuses, which then backfeed into the system to give you efficiency in different domains that the game uh, usually wouldn't let you do. So it'll have kind of hybridized actions where ah, this action lets me move, and this action lets me get people. Which one do I go to? With this cave painting scene, you can kind of synthesize an, a, a turn where you might unlock some movement and some getting characters all kind of in the same go, and you might be able to leverage those to, to uh, do kind of powerful plays like that, and a little bit of engine building. So it's, it's uh, it kind of pulls some of the game into a little bit of an eddy where you 
draw on that, record some stuff, and then it just takes all that uh, utility and puts it back into the game. It lets you, you know, kind of customize your strategy from there. It really will become an endless winter with all that expansion. I mean, it sounds like you went in, in several different avenues. Uh, and it reminds me when I thought back to when I first played, again, referring back to Dominion, we bought that game, and inside that box, we're like, oh, yeah, we can play this forever. Who needs all those expansions they talked about? But then yeah. you play it two or three times, and you're like, yeah, I want to try something different. I'm already ready for something new. And that's what it sounds like you did with Endless Winter, is that the game itself is fantastic on its own, but then you built in avenues to to expand upon and, and maybe reach different player interests. I love that. So I think it'll do well for you. And obviously it has on Kickstarter itself. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and you guys talked about, uh, and you mentioned it a few times here about stretch goals and how you kind of pre-plan some things, obviously with a campaign like this, where you've invested so much into the art and the production, everything that was pre-planned. Were there any stretch goals that kind of turned out to be a surprise or that you re regretted doing? or that new creators should stay far, far away from? Uh, we're, we're cautious about some things like, um, like I said, you know, we wouldn't do something like make um, a solo mode, a stretch goal that, you know, is undeveloped and we say, yeah, we'll slap on this, you know, stretch goal between now and when it goes to print. We wouldn't do something like that. We had some people asking, hey, could you make a stretch goal where there's like a co-op mode in the game? And it's like, I, I guess there are some games out there that are, primarily were intended to be competitive and they've released co-op versions, but that was one where we just said, you know, it's no, <laughs> we're not going to, you know, is it possible? Maybe if we had enough development time, do we want to? That's another question. And then can we right now and not delay the game and, uh, you know, hurt it or add extra components in order to facilitate a different mode like that. So that was one where we had to say, sorry, no, we can't, we can't make a, a co-op <laughs> version as a stretch goal. It's, it's just, it's too complex of a game and it's too interactive and there's too many systems to consider for that. So that yeah, was one we dodged. And then uh, trying to not just create content uh, that's gameplay related midstream being like, hey, let's, you know, let's make a, another deck of cards and promise a bunch of special abilities that uh, might be half-baked or whatever else. A lot of it's component upgrades, adding silkscreen, adding textures to things, uh, improving the shape and size of stuff, making it you know, just basically aesthetically richer and richer as we go. And then if there were gameplay related uh, stretch goals, little modules, those were pre-tested and pre-designed. So like the glacier tiles and all that, that's, you know, that's been in the pipeline the whole time. So, um, yeah. so we're kind of just sticking to what the plan was. And then of course we are still listening to uh, the backers. I guess the funny one, I don't know if you caught it was uh, with, with the cave paintings, uh, some roll and write games don't even come with a golf pencil. They don't come with anything. They tell you to go get your own. Some of them yeah. come with a pen that's nice, and some of them are on golf paper, you know, pad, crib sheet. It's like, okay. The nicer ones come on uh, dry erase, which I like, and some of them have, like, linen finish, and some of them will come with the pens. And some of them come with pens that have eraser tips. And that's, to me, that's that's a nice thing. And so right away I was like, hey, if we do this dry erase thing, we got to have eraser tips on the back of the pens. And can we throw that on as a stretch goal? So said, yeah, yeah, sure. So we just put it on as a little in-between stretch goal that we would just, you know, blow away in an hour. But people kind of flipped out. They're like, erasers? What do you mean erasers? And they just got all, they, they felt like it wasn't worthy. And that, that if the pens are going to come with the game, they should just by default have the caps and they shouldn't be a stretch goal. So, <laughs> uh, so our art director went meta on the thing and used the eraser to erase the stretch goal on the, on the page. Oh, so it looked all scribbled out and then put in a different stretch goal. 
because the eraser erased itself. <laughs> and, uh, everybody was just like, all right, you guys are cool at that point. So yeah, we, we did change course. Listen, you're backers to the next level. I mean, you guys are very involved in the comments and the, the marketing aspect. I can see that all over the page. So that's very cool. Right on. Well, um, what else? I think there's one other thing I want to talk about. You mentioned um, working with George, and I know you weren't directly involved with the video, but the video is fantastically done. And uh, just curious if you had any any um, perspective on that, on how they integrated the game play into the marketing through the video. Mm -hmm. So uh, I did a little bit and I didn't do a little bit. So some of the stuff I did work on is I worked on the script for it, which was you know kind of a collaborative effort to come up with the thematic overview, which takes up the first minute or so of, of that video. And so helping edit that and try to be succinct, but thematic. Um, with what that was, knowing that there would be some cool animations to go with that, and it would kind of describe what the what the narrator is saying, and then um, the voice kind of changes and pivots into, hey, it's this sort of game, and gets a little bit more about the product and the mechanics and things like that. And so uh, that was a part where I went in there and thought about, you know, how, how much of these nuts and bolts of the mechanics do you show in a large, complex game, and which ones really stand out to show what you do in in the simplest way possible so it really uh it's kind of like goal oriented what is the fun thing to do with the game and so kind of uh going through the comments of the script and seeing like this is where it says to do things and then uh i would comment on the side all right uh you know have a bunch of little camps you know appear on the map uh floating in from the side or whatever being placed to show that you know the map starts without the little camps on there and then becomes populated so populate the camps and so it was kind of just looking at how to both talk about the mechanics and then illustrate that at the same time. And it's just a big shared Google document. And we just go down and put comments and highlight, you know, switch to this, do this, here's this thing. And then he just did his wizardry after that. And right, it was right. so good. We just got it back. I don't even think we sent it back for a, a second edit where we're just like, yep. <laughs> perfect and uh we we're just really happy with how it showed up so he was really really good really professional no that's that's good to hear i mean some people try their own things some people uh, struggle to find somebody within their budget but sometimes with just the right video it can market very well not only on the kickstarter page but on facebook or twitter or instagram for a shorter version so i think you guys hit a home run with that video and with george and what he's done in the past really brought your your game theme to life there's so much theme to this game this endless winter and um i mean we talked about stone age before and and um how that worker placement worked was that kind of a, any relation to the theme working with a, a history long long time ago and building that um i don't know if it was directly correlated because again the by the time i came on board the name and title and theme of the game was already there and i believe uh, in a recent interview I watched with Stan, the designer, he, he had come up with this core system of hand management, worker placement, all that, with a sci-fi game of sorts, and felt uh, uninspired by, you know, creating a universe with factions and races and ships, you know, the whole thing. And uh, something made him pivot into prehistoric era. Yes. And he felt like that justified more mechanics started to make sense and what you're doing is action started to make sense and it opened up the design space for him and so somewhere between that happening and then you know the next 
leg of it is when I came in. Now I am a big fan of Stone Age. I've, that was one of my one of my first worker placement games, so I do have a sweet spot for that. And uh, you know, Stone Age isn't trying to be uh, a historic simulation of any sort. It's obviously very light. There's funny things in it. You know, you get the little love shack and other stuff like that, and you got your food track and tools and little things you're collecting. And uh, so I I like that thing about Euro games where they're thematic like that, but they they're not trying to be simulations. They're not trying to be exact historic, um, you know, geographically exactly nailed down these things. There's a little grain of salt given with it. Uh, and I thought, thought that was good. Now, Stone Age had a weird expansion, which they first called uh, Style is the Goal. And so it's like Stone Age. And then the second, you know, effort to add to that was this whole thing about wearing jewelry and making right. it out of bones and things like that. And I know that caught some people kind of off because it's like, why was that the first choice of what to do next where you know in our case it's like yeah you know the we'll go up some rivers and there'll be a volcano and we can paint in caves you know it's like we just start thinking thematically to come up with the expansions and <laughs> we, we would have thought like let's have a fashion show <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so i guess yeah. that's not a, a simulation but uh it does have that euro thing where it's it's strong mechanically it might be mechanically inspired but it's thematically informed uh, and the theme was not slapped on afterwards after a certain point where it's like the core mechanic, sure, that could pivot, but at a crucial interval there, it switched into the, this theme and it stayed with this theme. And this theme has driven uh, a majority of the development thereafter. Yeah, and there's quite a few games that will will start with that, a mechanic and a light theme, but then the theme just keeps on driving the development over time. So it obviously drove the expansion focus for you guys with the the traveling and with the the cave art and um, the animals that's all built into that theme it looks really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess uh, just looking back as we wrap up here, um, you guys have raised half a million dollars. You're going to raise more. This game is going to hit probably over ten thousand people, if not more. I know you guys don't have a, a value figured out yet for retailers and whatnot, but um, what is maybe one key learning? from this particular Kickstarter that a new developer or even an experienced developer could learn from? Well, uh, I think there's a lot of, it's that thing with, you know, preparation meets luck. We did a lot of preparation for these things, uh, trying to make the best choices, the most reliability as far as that stuff goes. But I think it's also circumstantially, there's there's things factoring in that, I'm not saying that every Kickstarter is going to do great right now, but there's strange things like the fact that Essen Spiel didn't happen this year. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I would normally be there and doing the whole thing, and I was supposed to have a bunch of games released that been, you know, backlogged for later release because why rush them if, you know, that's not an event? So the geography of the industry is a little bit different, and so uh, makes me think that, you know, visibility on Kickstarter might be something better. I mean, normally straddling the the spiel weekend in October is just like kind of a dead zone. You, it's like, whoa, you're you're crazy launching a Kickstarter during that or during Gen Con, right? So it opened up a little bit of the calendar for us, which was nice. And um, as far as the preparation stuff goes, again, one of the things I think was very wise on their part was trying to just go with um, basically branding and stuff that has credibility. Uh, as far as things go, like going with Paul Grogan's rules and Panda Manufacturing and name designer, name developer, <laughs> if, if I have a name, um, that sort of thing. And then also uh, building a community. The Facebook community has been really strong for this game, which has been very cool. We have a lot of active group members and we talk about the game. It's not just kind of like 
front-facing marketing. You're not know who it's talking about. If somebody has a question about the solo mode, a day won't go by and the solo designer is just on there just answering every question in like long-winded detail if they want to know. Um, so I think that I think I would like to think that the people are actually enjoying the fact that we're excited to dialogue with them and not just a bunch of people like doing customer service. It's like, right. you, you want to know about the development? You don't have to go through anybody <laughs> like the developer. Me will answer you in an hour and tell you stuff. And somebody says, hey, you know, do you think this card's imbalanced? I'll be like, let me take a look at it again. Why not? You know, I, I, I'm totally willing to consider people's ideas or or push and pull on things a little bit if they feel strongly about something. So it's I think they like that. Um, we're listening and, and we're happy to talk to them. Yeah. I mean, it, the group size on Facebook is small. It's only a thousand members, but you're, you're a lot more than that. You guys are involved in every other Facebook group that has, you know, from 50 members to 50,000 members. So um, I've seen you on there posting pictures and getting feedback and it's gone a long way to build your reputation. So that's awesome. And um, I think, do you know how many years Endless Winter was in, in kind of development before you got to it or overall before the Kickstarter? Was it two years? Was it one year? So I, I want to say uh, Stan in his recent interview said it was uh, a year or two ago he started working on it. And then Fantasia had signed it. Um, it might have been early this year of 2020 or it might have been late uh, 2019 when they signed it and uh, started making that their their games. So it's, I would say, yeah, it's, it's been evolving for a couple of years for sure. And then the accelerated part was, um, gosh, I want to say it was, it was after Gamma. So it was in maybe March, April of this year that, uh, really started working on it heavily. And we just kind of, you know, went full steam and just crunch, 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 just putting stuff out. So it's, uh, yeah, I would say, I'd say it's the development period has been fairly consolidated. I mean, it's been a few months, but getting it from where it was, which was still just cut out paper and, you know, proxy meeples and things like that to this sort of shiny prototype and, and uh, Kickstarter presentation was actually a pretty quick process under six months to do that. One of the the uh, MVPs we have on the team is, is uh, Yoma Yorgo, who uh, is a really good artist himself and a really good art director and graphic designer. So having somebody that uh, on uh, in the team is just incredible because you come up with some crazy idea and in the morning he'll have drawn it out and have all the, the final graphics of the, the UI and stuff laid out really nicely. And then when he instructs uh, Micho to commission artwork for it, he will be uh, more precise than other companies that work with him. We say, hey, just draw us a cool character. And he comes back with a cool character. But then all of a sudden, it's like a really cool part of the cool characters in the upper left corner, which will go right behind this icon and we won't be able to see it. And you're like, ah. so, uh, you know, it's a little more controlled like that. And so we've uh, the art direction is, is uh, kind of on tap, which is amazing. Excellent. And maybe um, just on a personal note, Johnny, like you've designed many, many games and supported games, whether it's through Fantasia or whether it's through um, the other company that we spoke of. Um, what kind of games inspire you or do you learn the most from? Is there a certain company that you're fond of or a certain type of style of game that you learn and uh, kind of enhanced your development skills? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my thing is I'll, I'll tell everybody right away that uh, um, I would say 90-something percent of my collection is Euro games by European publishers, by European designers. I just really love that stuff, and it's what got me into gaming. I don't have a background in 
video games, I have a background in trading card games or RPGs. It's I was like artist, musician, doing what I was doing, and then Euro games hit me with simple stuff like Carcassonne. Uh, Puerto Rico is probably the, one of the uh, mind-blowing, you know, pivotal games uh, of the time when I first discovered that and yeah, started yeah. playing those games, getting the group. And so a lot of my collection, which is about a thousand games, I think of it as kind of a research library because I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I I collect mostly by uh, designer. So I have certain designers that I will follow and not only just get their um, their big hits, but I'll also try to find the little things that maybe a small publisher did, or it was a game before the one that got popular, and see how they evolved, and uh, what what capacity they're they're at. And I'm also a musician. I like to do that with bands. I like you know hear their first couple albums before they had a hit single yeah, and see kind of learn from see how they learned from their mistakes and see what they took as the best nugget out of one of their creations. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, yeah, I learned from the Euro games a lot. So a lot of my stuff is that way. And then uh, I, I really do like behavioral economics and things like that. So I read a lot of books on uh, psychology, anything about like player psychology and and all that sort of leadology sort of stuff. Uh, Jeff Engelstein's work and yep. always thinking about things from that perspective. And uh, I've kind of come to the realization that I don't know if I, you know, if I have a big goal to like do this thing or the other thing or the other thing but i, I want to say there's something in me that wants to like give people uh you know good euro experience and a good hit of dopamine when they play the game just something that really um has a fun factor and just uh, whether that's tickling their brain in one way or if there's just something like half and half like i love the way sulkin is like this big crunchy euro game but it also has these wheels that turn and like the, the kid in you is just just amused that this turning wheel mechanism that represents time is moving your meeples around, making your it's it just scratches so many itches for me that um, I, I try to look at game design that way too and just look at yeah there's there's good dry euros that do what they're doing and then there's these ones that kind of walk the line that have this other little thing uh, in it that brings the player in it's like what are you doing with those dice what you place them that's cool and you know now dice placement's a thing um i think that's kind of where it's at for me is to find that blend of kind of stupid fun mechanics with the really smart mechanics and then make the games uh thematically informed earlier in their conception than just you know handing off a prototype that doesn't have a theme yeah yeah that's nice i like that uh the thought you had on talking to Zulkin, if I pronounce it right, but uh, so. it almost feels like you're playing with a toy, but it's a strategic toy, so you can justify it, right? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I really do appreciate your time with us, Johnny. You brought some insight from this uh, mega campaign that's running right now. For anybody listening, I'm planning to have this launched before the campaign's over, so you should still have time to get in at the lower price point, because I'm sure the MSRP will be higher than the Kickstarter pledge. Plus, there's some Kickstarter exclusives that I recall being built into it. So Mm -hmm. I still have time to join that. If you haven't already seen this amazing campaign, now you can. And just a kind of a brief recap of what it is, Endless Winter, uh, Paleo-Americans is kind of the subheader. It takes place in North America around 10,000 BCE. Players guide the development of their tribes across several generations, from nomadic hunter-gatherers to prosperous tribal societies. And over the course of the game, these tribes migrate and settle new lands, establish cultural traditions, hunt Paleolithic 
megafauna, if I pronounce that right, and build everlasting <laughs> megalithic structures. So that is quite the description, and it's a lot to to say that a game can do. But from what I've seen in the components and the videos and the reviews and um, everything about it, just looks uh, really stellar and uh, something I'm going to add to my collection. I think many game designers could learn so much from this, just from the the art direction to the components to the mechanical integration of two well-beloved mechanics uh, just you guys hit a home run and i think you um, were lucky to be a part of fantasia and fantasia was lucky to have you so just really thank you johnny and appreciate your time today thank you so much it was a pleasure talking all right and uh, i'm sure we'll chat at some point in the future take care sir cool thanks so much